To Romans chapter 13, I invite your attention with me this Lord's Day morning to Romans 13, where we'll continue our series of sermons in this letter from the Apostle Paul to the Christians at Rome. Paul continues now to develop the concrete details of a genuine and faithful Christian life, turning his eye today to the relationship between Christians and the state, or what we might call the civil government. Now, contrary to some popular views of this text that hold that Paul has here diverged somehow from his point, as a matter of fact, Paul is continuing seamlessly to develop his thoughts from the text we've considered over the past couple of weeks. He's been writing about how Christians must cope with opposition and with hostility that will come to them for no other reason than that they are in Christ. It's only natural, then, that he would at this point turn his sights and those of his readers to the political realities of his and their day. Interestingly, the situation of our own day may well be turning in the same direction. As Christians, we may well face, and in some ways already are facing some circumstances very similar to those faced by our spiritual predecessors in Rome. If not yet fully hostile to our faith, our own government in America is growing more and more into an outright enemy of our morals. Christian landlords, for instance, are no longer at liberty to refuse to rent to a homosexual couple. Christian parents are more and more feeling the force of the state in matters of parenting. We continue to watch developments across our country, like California's recent threat to keep Christian parents from homeschooling their children without direct state control. Our court system, it appears, may soon be dealing with another case, the likes of Terry Schiavo's, basing its decision as it now does on a purely humanistic worldview that is unabashedly hostile to Christianity. And the list goes on. Abortion, euthanasia, pornography, gambling, the disintegration of marriage. Our government not only defends, but actually promotes these very things. And in the process, Christians are finding themselves on the defensive. The storm clouds are gathering, dear flock, just maybe not just, but not altogether unlike the way they were for Christians in Rome, to whom Paul originally sent this letter. What will he say to Christians about their relationship with the state? How shall we live with regard to civil leaders who are now not only indifferent, but becoming even hostile to Christ and his chosen flock? Paul answers after first we pray. Father in heaven, your word has great things to say to us, for you are a great God, and you have called us to be your people But your scripture lays on us great demands and requirements as well. And this we do not complain of, Father, uh, 
we rejoice that you should entrust us with such things as being members of your kingdom and living in and among kingdoms on earth. But we pray that even as you teach us now what it is that you require of us, that you will also give us the grace to do it. Command what you will, O God, but give what you command. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 13, the first seven verses. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God. Attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now, I didn't remind you that we are in a very political season right now. Over these coming months, you will hear people calling for larger government on the one hand, while others will beckon for smaller government, or rather we might say for a less large government. But I can almost guarantee you that you will not hear any calls for no government. Government, civil leadership, is a virtually universal reality. It may be large and sophisticated. It may be as simple as the gathering of village elders, It may be smooth operating or in a shambles, but everywhere people live, there is government. Now, none of that surprises you. But perhaps you're surprised to hear the Bible here requiring what seems like absolute obedience on the part of the Christian to the civil power. The Bible has several passages, in fact, that sound very familiar. In his first letter to Timothy, Paul writes, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. To another minister, Titus, Paul writes, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. 
And the Apostle Peter agrees with this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, there are many things that might be said from passages like those about the Christian and the state, how he or she should relate to the civil government. But we can boil them all down, at least in this passage in Romans before us today, we can boil them down under two headings, obey and pay. First, Christians, you must obey the civil government. You must obey the civil government. In other words, you must submit yourselves to those who rule over you. That's not to say that it's always going to be easy for us, particularly if things continue down the same uh, direction they are now in our own nation. But for this unflagging obedience and submission to the civil authorities, we have impeccable Biblical examples, namely Jesus and Paul. Remember that Jesus, as we confessed just a few minutes ago, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Jesus willingly submitted himself to the civil government. Respectfully, he did so. To Pontius Pilate's questioning persevering through the interrogation with perfect obedience. Paul, too, would subject himself to the government of Rome. Even Nero, who you remember burned Christians as torches in his garden, until, we believe, even Paul himself went to death under Nero. Christian leaders continued on for centuries, even in the teeth of of terrible persecution to take this same view and render this same obedience to the civil government, to the civil leaders, to the state. Justin writes this, Everywhere we more readily than all men endeavor to pay those appointed by you the taxes, both ordinary and extraordinary, as we have been taught by Jesus. We worship only God, But in other things, we will gladly serve you, acknowledging you as kings and rulers of men and praying that with your kingly power, you may be found to possess also sound judgment. Another early Christian pleads for peace for the Christians with this. We deserve favor because we pray for your government that you may, as is most equitable, receive the kingdom Son from Father, and that your empire may receive increase and addition until all men become subject to your sway. Tertullian writes in his Apology, we offer prayer for the safety of our princes to the eternal, the true, the living God 
whose favor beyond all other things they must themselves desire. Without ceasing, for all our emperors, we offer prayer. We pray for life prolonged, for security for the empire, for protection for the imperial house, for brave armies, a faithful senate, a virtuous people, the world at rest, whatever as man or Caesar an emperor would wish. All along. Even at times of terrible persecution under those very emperors. This was the attitude of Christians held toward the civil government. One of submission and obedience. Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us three reasons why it must be so. First, you must obey the civil leaders for God's sake. What I mean is this. God himself has put the civil leaders in their places. He has put them in office. He raises up kings, the scripture says. He removes kings. It is he who determines who shall rule, who shall enforce the laws of the state, who shall write the laws of the state, who shall carry civil authority in any place. John Stott counts in this passage... Three places where Paul affirms the state's authority to be God's authority. And another three where Paul describes the state and its ministers as God's ministers. In other words, from the biblical perspective, Rome, even Rome, at her worst exercised authority that was not her own, but was devolved upon her by God himself. That same principle, that same truth, remains in force for our government. Whether you're talking about Washington, D.C., or Frankfurt, or Indianapolis, our governors... Our president, our senators, our representatives, our judges, our policemen, all of them are exercising God's authority. When that policeman down in Bowling Green hoisted himself up on the running boards of my truck on Friday night and holding on to the mirror with one hand, extended his hand with the other and said, your license, please, and proof of insurance. That was God making those demands. The officer was performing checks for drunken drivers, and to follow Paul's logic, that was God performing checks for drunken drivers on Highway 231, in Bowling Green, Kentucky. God exercises his authority through the state's leaders, through the state's officers who are called in this text. Did you catch it? This is striking. They're called in the Bible God's ministers. Liturgical worship language assigned to police officers and presidents 
and judges. God's ministers. A second reason why you must obey the civil authority is for judgment's sake. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. The threat is plain, dear flock. Resist civil authorities and you resist God. And resisting God brings judgment. The threat is plain, dear flock. Resist civil authorities and you resist God. And for that, for throwing off God's authority, the authority that God himself has placed over you, you will suffer his judgment. It is rebellion against him when you rebel against the orders of the judge. You are rebelling against God. When you break the laws of the state, when you treat a policeman with contempt, you are showing contempt to God. Third, you must obey civil authorities for conscience sake. Verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but for the sake of conscience. In other words, because the Christian understands that the civil authority is actually exercising God's authority. Indeed, because he may have a much, because you, because we may, may have a much better understanding of that fact than even that policeman does or that ruler does. For that reason, a Christian must live according to this understanding. Our attitudes and our actions when it comes to our state rulers from the president to the policeman must be governed by that knowledge. I know there are some of you, many of you perhaps, who are thinking right now, You're asking, but what if the civil authority requires me to disobey God? That's not really even in view here. Of course, we could go on to talk about the apostles who, when they were told by the authorities to stop preaching Christ, said that we must, you remember the line, we must obey God, not men. And you remember the Hebrew midwives, those faithful women who disobeyed the authority and did not kill those babies. And there are no doubt such extreme circumstances in which Christians must disobey the state. But do not, do not let those extreme examples soften the blow of this passage, my brothers and sisters. To obey your civil leaders, Paul says, is to obey God. And to disobey them, to show contempt for them, no, I, no matter how sinful they are, no matter how crooked they are, no matter how corrupt they are, to disobey them is to disobey God. And to show contempt for them is to show contempt for God. Which brings me to the second point. Not only must we obey, Paul says, second Christians, we must pay the civil government. Four things in particular we must pay to the state. First, Paul says, pay your taxes. Twice, in fact, he talks about paying your taxes. The second time, in verse 5, Paul uses a word that conveys the idea of paying back your taxes. In other words, this is something you owe to the government. The assumption is that you have received something from them. 
And you needn't look very far to see that it truly is so. The roads on which you drive, public places in which you meet for gathering, your local library, the protection and services you expect from the police department and from the fire department, from the food inspectors, and so on. And the list goes on. All of those things the government provides for you. Now you owe them, pay them what you owe. Pay your taxes, or as Paul implies here, pay them back. Now you know. You know your taxes are used for things with which you disagree completely. Things that would otherwise violate your conscience. A few Christians today have actually taken the approach for that reason of refusing to pay the taxes that they owe. But that, dear flock, that is simply not a biblically viable option. The Bible does not give us that option. Even Jesus, remember, paid his taxes to a government who used the money Jesus paid for the most debauched and sinful and rebellious and even pagan causes. Christians have even found themselves in places where their taxes were used to persecute Christians. Listen to this account of the interaction between a faithful Christian and the government, civil government. Justin, whose name I've already mentioned to you this morning, lived in the middle of the second century. He wrote a famous apology or defense of Christianity in which he countered accusations frequently made in those days that Christians were disloyal to the state, that they, had made, that they made bad citizens. No, wrote Justin, he said that the truth was the very opposite of what was being alleged. There are not more obedient, loyal, hard-working, productive citizens in all the empire than Christians. These are the people, he said, who of all the people in the world live peaceable lives and can be counted on to obey the laws. He went on to say that Christians always pay their taxes with exemplary faithfulness, something that could not be said of the ordinary run of citizens in that day. The empire, Justin said, would run far more smoothly if only there were more Christians rather than less. Well, as it happened, it was not long afterward that Justin was himself dragged into a Roman court and accused of being a Christian. His accuser was apparently a rival teacher of philosophy who was jealous of Justin's popularity and success. Six other Christians, apparently disciples of Justin, appeared with him in the dock. The judge was looking to find them guilty. Trials were often political affairs in those days. The judge commanded the accused to sacrifice to the state gods. They refused. The judge, who was well-known as something of a bully, questioned Justin, who was well-known uh, about his belief, rather, but the contempt in his voice made it clear that it was only 
a show. When he could learn no more about the Christians' beliefs, he came to the point. He asked each man in turn if he were a Christian. Each acknowledged that he was. Some were the children of Christian parents and had been Christians from their infancy. Others were converts to the faith in their adulthood. Most, if not all of them, had been taught by Justin. They were not all clever, but none of them wavered. They were threatened with flogging and with execution. Jeering, the judge asked Justin if he thought he would ascend to heaven. I don't think so, Justin replied. I know and am fully convinced of it. After one last but equally fruitless attempt to get them to offer sacrifice to the Roman gods, the judge condemned them all to death by beheading. And so it was that Justin received the name by which he's been known throughout history, Justin Martyr. Now remember, this is the government to whom Justin paid and insisted the Christians pay their taxes. And true to the last, he would have defended that obedience and required it of his fellow Christians because God himself has made it plain in his word, both by commandment and by example, that Christians must pay their taxes and pay them faithfully and pay them promptly to their government. Second thing Paul lists in verse 7 that we must pay to our government is revenue. The idea here is very close to taxes. It falls probably close to a customs charge or taxation on possessions, particularly when one nation is ruling over another group of people. But taxes and revenues are not the only things that you and I owe to our civil leaders, according to verse 7 in your Bible. You owe them two more things as well. Respect and honor. I won't treat them separately, but simply say that there is a way in which Christians, in which you and I must hold our state leaders, our civil leaders at every level, from the White House to the patrol car and every point in between. There is a way that Christians must speak of their leaders no matter how contemptible they may be on a personal level. They are God's leaders because God himself has placed them there. And for that reason, and for that reason alone, we must hold them with respect and with honor. It is a terrible indictment on us on the church, shame on us that we should ever have joked or jibed with those lines like Slick Willie when President Clinton was in office. Such things should never have been heard on the lips of Christians. No matter how unworthy of respect one individual state leader may be or another. It is the office 
the office established by God, fulfilled providentially by God that demands our honor and our respect. When that policeman climbed up the side of my truck a couple of days ago, I could see when the light hit his face that he was probably at least 15 years my junior. But I called him sir and answered with proper respect. Why? Well, my own heart is deceitful, even to me. But hopefully it was because I owe him that kind of respect. No matter how old or young he may be, that officer, even if he didn't understand this Friday night, even if he doesn't know this, he is God's officer. He is God. To use Paul's word, he is God's minister. And therefore, I must honor him and I must respect him. In a matter of months, our nation's going to have a new president and vice president, and many other changes are going to take place too. Whatever those changes should bring, my brothers and sisters, whether to our liking or even should it be to our demise, as in Justin Martyr's case, let us be found true to God and to his commandments. Let us obey and let us pay. For those things we owe to our government, to God's government. And let the watching world now see this and look at us as Christians and see it with perfect clarity that while they may consider the state, the civil government, and civil leaders as mere necessities, we see them for what they are, ministers of God. Amen.